Soul of the Parsha with Rabbi Nir Menusi. This class is made possible by our kind supporters over at Patreon. Thank you and enjoy the class. Hello everyone and welcome to our new weekly Soul of the Parsha class. Today is a special class because we're celebrating two occasions. The first and the regular is the Parsha. It's Parsha Ki Tavo. It's the seventh Parsha of the fifth book of the Torah, Deuteronomy, and the fiftieth Parsha of the Torah. So it's beautiful numbers. The seventh is always a, a blessed number. And number 50 is also a good number. It's the number of the gate, number of uh, gates of understanding. So we're in the seventh parsha and the 50th parsha of the entire Torah. And the second occasion is uh, the 18th day of Elul. The 18th day of Elul, which will be tomorrow night, is a very uh, happy day in Hasidut. It is the twin birthday, the double birthday of first the Baal Shem Tov, who was of course the founder of Hasidut, and 47 years later of his student student, who was the Alter Rebbe of Chabad, the first Rebbe of Chabad, who is called Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi, also known as Baal Atanya. And so really they are the central figures of the first generation of Hasidut, the Baal Shem Tov, and then the third generation of Hasidut. In fact, the Alter Rebbe saw himself and often uh, referred to himself as the spiritual grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. When he was born, as we said, he was born on the, on the, on the 47th birthday of the Baal Shem Tov. A year before that, on his 46th birthday, the Baal Shem Tov blessed his parents that they're going to have a son a year later. And they did have a son the very next year on that same day. And then three years Later, on the Baal Shem Tov's 50th birthday, uh, when the Alter Rebbe, when the Rebbe Shneur Zalman of Ladi was three years old, uh, his parents took him to the Baal Shem Tov for his upsheranisht, his chalaket, to cut his hair. Because it's customary in Judaism, too, in Hasidut, in many circles, to have your first haircut when you're three years old on your birthday. So the Baal Shem Tov clipped a little bit of, of his hair, and and he warned the the parents that the the little child should not speak to him at all. He didn't want to interfere with, with his education. He knew that this young child was not his direct pupil, but he should be the pupil of his pupil, the second generation. In between those two figures is the great Magid of Mezrich. The Magid of Mezrich is the uh, the the main successor of the Baal Shem Tov, the, the, the one who led the second generation of students. And, and so the Baal Shem Tov knew that he shouldn't really directly interfere. He knew that he wasn't the spiritual father of Rabbi Shneur Zalman, he was the spiritual grandfather. And the grandfather is, you know, he takes a step backwards, he doesn't interfere. Grandparents shouldn't really interfere with the education uh, that their children choose to give to their grandchildren. It's their, the it's the it's up to the to the children to decide how exactly they want to raise the grandchildren. So he was very careful not to interfere. So he took a step backwards and he warned the parents. He said, "I don't want to speak to him. I don't want him to ask me any questions. He's not my student. He is the Magid student. When he'll grow up, he'll be the student of my student, and he will be the one to teach him." 
So they warned him not to ask anything, but then when he asked, this three-year-old child, the Rebbe Shner Zaman of Ladi, founder of, of Chabad, when he uh, asked his parents, who was this person we just visited, they told him, uh, he's a, a grandfather, he's like the Saba, that's what they said, he's the Saba. So this was ingrained in him, that this figure, although he wasn't his literal, actual grandfather, was a grandfather figure to him. And so the, the, the structure that we have here is that we have this first generation of Hasidut, is founded by the Baal Shem Tov, born on the 18th day of Elul, uh, exactly 323 years ago. This was 1698, according to the Christian calendar, and it was the year Nachar, it was the year 5458 in the Jewish calendar. So that's the first generation of Hasidut. He's like the grandfather here. And then the second generation, he doesn't have a birthday today, uh, is the Maggid of Mezrich. And, and then finally, it's the birthday of the central figure of the third generation, founder of Chabad, Rabbi Shner Zalman of Ladi, who saw, who saw himself as the grandchild, the spiritual grandchild of the Baal Shem Tov. And interestingly, the, so we have here a connection between the first and the third generation, the grandfather and the grandchild. And you can think about relationships between uh, children and their grandparents. It's an interesting relationship. The grandparents, as we just said, as illustrated in the story, that he didn't want to, he, he cut off some of his hair on that first haircut, but he didn't want to speak with him. Because the influence of the grandparents, of the one of the of the two of going two generations backward, this influence is not a direct linear intellectual influence. The parent is the one who teaches you to read and write and teaches you right and wrong and teaches you your actual conscious knowledge of everything you consciously follow. But as we all know, children don't always continue in the path, in the exact path of their parents. If their relationship is good, they do continue on that path. But many times you see many, many differences, and you see this all over the place. Even if looking at, the, at, at our own generation, looking at the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe had a great deal of, of respect to his father. His father was an amazing, incredible scholar and a, a great Hasidic master in his own right. Um, but he went in a very different path. They had totally different styles. And he, in fact, he chose as a father figure a different person. He very much respected, honored his, his father, but his, his father-in-law, who was the, the, one bef the Rebbe who was one generation before him, the sixth Rebbe of Chabad, the Rebbe Rayatz, for the, for the seventh Rebbe, the famous Lubavitcher Rebbe, he was his central father figure. So he didn't walk in the footsteps of his own father, he walked in the footsteps of, he adopted another father figure. So we see that, uh, so th we have this two sides to how education works. The father figure is the one who gives you the most direct influence, but not necessarily the one you would follow. Because the, there's a tendency between parents and their children to veer in another direction. We, we see this in, in the three fathers of Judaism, the three patriarchs, that Abraham was a figure of chesed, loving-kindness, 
And then his son, Yitzchak, was the exact opposite. He was a figure of might, gvura. Very totally opposite. He respected his father, but he went in a different direction. However, it's very much different with your grandfather. With your grandfather, you don't have this direct influence so much. They don't educate you and discipline you and tell you what to do and try and point you in a direction. It's more subtle, more in the background. It's softer. It's sort of a kind of a background, uh, you know, soundtrack. And, but in a way, it seeps deeper. And many times, people don't exactly walk in the path of their fathers or parents, but they do feel very much close to their grandparents. And it, and it goes together with this kind of indirect influence, sometimes go deeper, is it more deeply ingrained. So this sort of uh, pattern is reflected in the fact that 18th of Elul is the birthday of the first generation of Hasidut and the third generation of Hasidut, which again is the grandfather and the grandchild figures. So that's very interesting, that they are connected, they're more connected to one another than either of them is connected to the central figure, who is the Magid, who is again an, an important figure in and of itself, in and, in and of himself. But in a way, there's this underground connection leading from the grandchild to the grandson. And by the way, this is even true a little bit in genetics. We see in genetics that sometimes a certain property uh, of, a, of, a, of, of uh, that goes from the grand, from one generation to the next generation and then to a third generation, it becomes, it's hidden, it's recessive in the middle generation. So it's dominant and it's expressed in the first generation, and it becomes again dominant and expressed in the third generation. But it seems to skip a generation. It doesn't really skip the generation. It's just under the, underneath the, thir- the surface of the, of the second generation, the middle generation. It's recessive. It's, it, it goes into the recesses, the so-called, the so to speak subconscious recesses of the second generation, the child. Anyway, this is just a very long introduction to Chayelul. And, but it will, it will become uh, connected to what we want to talk about today. So again, we said it's two occasions. So the, the one occasion is, is Chayelul. And the second occasion, which is just a good opportunity to speak about what Chassidur is all about and what Chabad Chassidur is all about. What is the relationship between Chassidur as a general concept and Chabad, which is a more which is a, a way of integrating the general light of Hasidut into our own psyches and lives. It's a more intellectual, it's the more intellectual stream or aspect of Hasidut, and which is really a way of integrating the light of Hasidut into our intellectual and general vessels. So, but the second occasion is, of course, um, is, of course, the parsha, and this year, this year we are focusing on the opening segment of each parsha. So we want to do this today as well. We want to look at the opening segment of the parsha and connect it to the occasion of Chayelul. So the parsha Kitavo begins with the commandment of Bikurim. Bikurim is the commandment to bring to the Beit Hamikdash to the Temple the first ripened fruit that we that grows in our crops 
specifically from the seven species that the land of Israel is blessed with. It's not from any fruits, just from those seven species of fruit. And the mitzvah is that once we have conquered the land and inhabited the land, this took time, that's not as we entered the land, we had to first conquer it and, and, and settle it, and then it, we, we, and that's how the verse says this explicitly, then from that point onwards we're obligated each year to bring the first ripened fruit. And this happens, the, it starts with the festival of Shavuot, festival of weeks or Pentecost, the festival, uh, the, the, the second out of the three festivals, and it goes on all the way to Sukkot, to the festival of tabernacles. So this is the time that we can bring the first ripened fruit. And in fact, the, the festival of weeks, of Shavuot, is also called Yom HaBikurim. It's one, it's one of its titles. So let's read the first two verses of the parsha, which talk about this. So it goes like this. When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a heritage, and you possess it and settle in it, you shall take some of every first fruit of the soil, which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and put it in a basket, and go to the place where the Lord your God will choose to establish His name. Right In the Torah, it doesn't say that the chosen place where the temple is Jerusalem. It's never said, because this was decided in the time of David. The only thing it says in the Torah is the place that, you, that God shall choose. And then later on, it becomes, in David's time, David is the one who, who exposes or makes it known, makes it clear that this place is, is, uh, is Jerusalem, which is, of course, has been holy, has been a site of many, many, many important events in the Torah. This is our tradition, what, what we say, but the name of Jerusalem does not appear in the Torah. So... It just says the place that your God shall choose. And why is this important? It's important because we will now want to first go briefly over a very, very basic interpretation of the Baal Shem Tov to, this, to these two verses, which is really a wonderful introduction to Hasidut, just a general introduction to Hasidut. So it's, it's wonderful to connect this on Chayelul, just taking these two verses and then reading them slowly as uh, the Baal Shem Tov interpreted. Actually, it's an interpretation that wasn't given to us directly from the Baal Shem Tov or directly from one of his students. It's an interpretation ascribed to the Baal Shem Tov by the fifth Rebbe of Chabad. The fifth Rebbe of Chabad lived several generations later, but he had a sort of spiritual chevruta uh, or class with the Baal Shem Tov. On the day of Chayelul, he went up to the heavens and he met the Baal Shem Tov, and the Baal Shem Tov taught him this interpretation. So the interpretation was given by the Rebbe Rashab, that was his name, fifth Rebbe of Chabad, and he said, I heard this in heavens from the Baal Shem Tov, right? So it's, it, that's how it came into the world. So I'm gonna, we're going to go over the verses slowly and see this spiritual Hasidic interpretation. So it starts, As you come into the land. Now the word land in Hebrew, Eretz, is cognate or connected to the word Ratzon, which is will. So the, the verse, 
והיקי תבוא אל הארץ, as you come into the land can be read as as you come into connection with your own will. That is, we're referring here not to uh, different, you know, earthly or even uh, deeper spiritual desires. We're talking about the fundamental will or desire or passion of the soul, which is really the, soul, the soul's calling. The soul has a will, a superconscious will, that is what it came into the world in order to actualize. All of our different uh, desires and wishes and dreams and ideas, the things that we are attracted to, it all stems from an initial rudimentary or very, very basic root desire, which is the desire of the soul to reveal itself and with it an aspect of godliness into the world. That is the superconscious will of the soul. And if someone uh, likes cars, and someone likes paintings, and someone likes uh, taking, uh, taking trips, uh, bicycle trips, each earthly desire that we have is really stemming, think, even, even you know, things that we favor over other things, our aesthetic taste, whatever it is, it all stems from, it all attests to, or gives us clues as to what is the fundamental wish or will of our souls. So our, the, the, when we, as we become conscious of our lives and who we are and what we're doing in the world, our first main goal sh should be to discover what is the purpose of my soul? What is my calling? What is it that I came into the world to do? I can do a lot of things, but I need to look at what I'm talented in and what I'm called upon to be, and that is the will of my soul. So, as you come into the land, means as you come into contact with your will. Also, the, the, these two words, will and land, you can hear the connection, also has to do with running, the will if given the choice, will run to do what it wants. But it's inhibited and pushed back by all kinds of elements in the world that we have to overcome. And as we connect to this will, and as we're, and once we're really connected to it, it rushes into our consciousness. And it just wants to spend every living moment to try and do its mission in the world. Continuation, continuing with the verses, that, that, that Hashem, your God, is giving you as a uh, heritage to inherit. So this means that this will, although it is our will, it is the will of our soul, it's very individual and unique, it, it's not really our own. I called it the superconscious will. Why is it superconscious? It's above your consciousness. It's a gift from God. The land, this land, or this will, is a land that God is giving you as a heritage. You inherit your divine soul, and you inherit your, your uh, divine will from God. It's not yours. It's planted within you, given to you, in order to actualize in the world. Go, going on. And you shall settle in it. 
That means that we have to take this will, and this will is a lot of super conscious lights, a lot of incredible ideas, and, and, and again, it's something passionate and something that we, are, we feel very deeply. We have this uh, vocation in this, in, in that we have to do in our lives, but we have to be settled in order to do it. We have to take all these lights and put them in vessels. So we need to settle the lights. We need to inherit the land and settle the land. Take this will, the Ratzon, the Eretz, and settle it. So on the, on the literal level, we're inhabiting the land. Here the land becomes our superconscious will that we need to take that, that land, that will, and make that, uh, you know, settle that into the world. Have that energy be settled in the world. And then it says, and then you shall take from all the fruit of the land, and you shall place in a basket. Now, the, the Hebrew word for this is ten. It's an interesting, unique word. And this is the first time it's appearing in the, in the Torah, I think. I have to double-check this. But this is a, a relatively unique word. And ten is basket. And we're going to go into that word later on in this class. And interestingly, the word tene, the numerical value is 60, is the exact numerical value as kli, which, mean, which means vessels. So taking all this fruit of, those, of that superconscious will, and we have to put it in a basket that is in vessels. And again, the word tene equals kli, so it really is the epitome of, the, of what vessel is all about. We have to take all these lights and put them in vessels. And... This is, in a way, the first allusion in the Torah to the idea of lights of chaos in vessels of rectification, which is a concept we talk about often. Lights of chaos, it, here it's the first ripened fruit, Bikurim. Bikurim is like the Bechorot, the firstborn of the Torah, and they're always chaotic souls. That's why the Torah says, well, your high souls, you know, Cain, and then Ishmael, and then Esav. You're very high souls, but you're also chaotic souls. And we need to pull, put you, your, put your lights in vessels of rectification. That's why we're choosing the next child. We're choosing Abel over Cain, and we're choosing Yitzchak over Ishmael, and we're choosing Yaakov over Esav, because those, uh, those ch children represent vessels of rectification. They really, they're, they're more settled souls. So we want to take all this chaotic energy and we want to put it in, in souls. We have the first fruit, that's like the first chaotic uh, inspiration that we have, but we don't run with this inspiration immediately. We want to put it in vessels. We want to make sure it comes across, you know, it takes into consideration the how this world operates and what works in this world. If we're overexcited, the vessels will break. So we need to take vessels very seriously. So that means putting it in a basket. The basket is here as a vessels. Um, and then, what's the continuation? Then you go to the place that your God shall choose. What is going to the place that your God shall choose? So this goes, this interpretation, means that wherever your feet take you, wherever it is that you go in the world, you were led there by God. This is Hashgacha Pratit. Divine Providence. Divine Providence 
make sure that wherever we are situated in the world, wherever we happen, we happen to be right now, uh, it's not by mistake or by error or even by our own intention. Sometimes we think that we are the ones, you know, governing our lives. And, and then if we're in a place that we plan to be, then we're happy. That's where we plan to be. And if we're in a place that we didn't plan to be because there was some accident or anything that, you know, caused us to go off our planned route, then we say, oh no, this is, this is not what I planned. This was not what was meant to be, what was meant to happen. So wrong. It, it was, that was what was meant to happen. And even if by chance you are where you wanted to be, then you are there, not because you wanted to be there, but despite wanting to be there, you are there because God wanted you to be there. Wherever it is that you are, every place that you go to, is the place that God chooses. Right? This is a, Again, this is a deeper reading of the place that your God shall choose. The literal meaning is there is a particular place, which, is, which will be revealed to be later on Jerusalem, and that is a very particular place that God chooses. But the deeper Hasidic reading is that every place you go to is your Jerusalem right now. Wherever you may be in the world, right now, this is your Jerusalem. You have to build a temple there. So that's the, the final element here, is Leshaken Shmosham, to make God's name dwell, or God's presence dwell in that place. The reason you're led, where you're led, the reason your feet take you, where they take you, and the reason the winds of of the world, of the of fate, take you, of really your providence, take you wherever you go, the, there's only one purpose for this. And the purpose is that you make it, you, sure, you... but first you have to oops, unlock your device. Sorry. They, these devices, they listen to you, and then they think you're talking to them. So this is really a, a kind of reminder that someone is listening all the time. And uh, so, the reason you're, 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 you find yourself in, in places is, there's only one reason, is that you reveal God's presence there. God is already present there. But you have to see it, and then you have to show it to others in as much as you can. So this is Leshaken Shmosham, to make God's dwelling or presence be revealed in that place. So this is a very basic, very Baal Shem Tov-like interpretation. It's no wonder that the Rebbe Rashab said, it's not mine. The Rebbe Rashab's Torahs are much, much more compl complex and dense. And But this is a very straightforward, you know, relatively speaking, Hasidic reading of these verses. It's not just the commandment of Bikurim, it's, uh, it's a kind of message to the soul of what you need to go through. You need to connect to your superconscious will. You need to realize it's not your own. It was given to you by God. Every inspiration that you have, every moment of illumination that you have, every moment that you know what your vacation is, is an opportunity to grasp this fruit of your soul, which is, again, it's not yours. That's the whole point of the commandment of Bikurim, is that you're grateful to God, and you said you're not, not, the first fruit are not mine, I'm giving them to the temple because I'm, although I, I may have planned, I may have, you know, uh, uh, what's the word, no? plowed the, the field and, and planted the seeds and, and, and everything, but it's really, it's all God's gifts. And the same goes for the 
for the soul energy and soul light. So we received it from on high, and then we have to um, uh, put those lights into vessels, and then we have to realize that every opportunity in the world, every place we're going to or we're, we're, uh, we find ourselves in, is an opportunity to take this light and use it in order to reveal God's presence. And, of course, taking this, we need to take these interpretations to heart and really sort of walk with them, you know, in the world, take them with us, and walk with them in the world and open our eyes to, to remembering them, that wherever, whatever happens, there's nothing is by accident, nothing is by chance. And, in fact, we're, we're going through these confrontations and hardships and, and dilemmas in order that we connect to the will of our soul to an even greater degree than we were connected before. Um, so basically something to practice. Now what I wanted to do with the, the, the remaining time that we have is to focus on just one word, just one word here, and, and see what, what, where it takes us. And this word is the word I said before, tene. Tene. This unique word for basket. Tene. Tet nun alef. Three letter word. And, and we want to explore this a little bit using Hasidic um, tools. So here I'm actually going to do something I don't usually do in the weekly class. I'm going to show you a slide. So here we are. So what we have here is we have a two very basic Kabbalistic structures put together, corresponded together, because they do correspond. And actually we can spend a whole, a whole year just studying what you see on the screen. But we're going to do this very, very briefly. And then we'll see the connection to, to Tene. You, you can, if you're, you know, if you're, pay, if you're careful and if you pay attention, you can get, you can already see the connection. But I'm going to, I'm going to just start by going over what we're seeing here. So there's a structure on the right and another structure on the left. It's two structures that have four levels to them. And they're very basic. So the first one on the right is called Tanta. Tanta is the first four letters of the Hebrew words we see here, going from top to bottom. Tanta. Tanta is the acronym of Te'amim, Nekudot, Tagim, and Otiot. What, what does this mean? So actually, to get a, an understanding of this, we need to go from, from the bottom up. It's easier. So the, the last letter is Aleph, and that means Otiot, and Otiot means letters. So, we're talking about the letters of the Torah. All the Torah, all language, is made up of letters. We're talking here about an, a, written or a written text. You open the Torah, a Torah scroll, and any other book, what you see is letters. Above the letters, there's another level. This level is called the Tagim. And this is actually, became in English, the word tags. It's, it comes from the Hebrew word Tagim. These are the little points that are pointing up from some of the Hebrew letters in a Torah scroll. In traditional Torah text, also in Mezuzot and Tfilin, but in, in every Torah book, we see that some letters have little, sort of like little arrows, little pointing, like little trees or bushes that come up from the letters. It's a, like a line with a little circle at the end, and these are called the Tagim. So on, on a regular text, every book, we don't have them, even Hebrew. We don't have it on a regular Hebrew book. 
we do have it on uh, on uh, uh, Torah scrolls and mezuzot and tefillin, right? Which is what Sofrei Stam write. Sofrei Stam are the the people who write a a a text, a Torah text that's commanded. It's part of a mitzvah. So Stam is the acronym of Sfarim, Tfilin, Mezuzot, the three things that Sofrei Stam write. And then you see on many letters, you see these Tagim. So that's an interesting level. And so anyway, it's two things. If you open the Torah scrolls, you actually see them written down in the scroll. You see the letters and you see the Tagim. Third level is the Nekudot. Nekudot you don't see on the, on the text of the Torah scroll or the Mezuzot or the Tfilin. But you do see it on every other uh, uh, version of the Torah and the and of the prayers. It's the vowels. It's the little nekudot, the little points that are scattered all over the words, within the words, below the words, above the words, and they're the the equivalents, the the equivalent of the English vowels. They tell you how to read the word, whether it's an a or an o or an u or an e or an e. It all depends on the vowels. The vowels are the nekudot that are in between. The vowels are a later tradition. You don't see them on Torah scrolls. According to historians, they started in the Middle Ages. According to tradition, they go back much earlier than that. But they they weren't written down. You knew them. You could use them, but they weren't written. And that's why they're not in the Torah text. They're invisible in the text. You see them in, in printed text, like every Torah book that you buy, not a Torah scroll, you see the points, that's how you read the text. Uh, every children's book in Hebrew, of course, has those points. Uh, adult books uh, don't, because people know the words already. And then the final, the final and fourth level, which is also invisible when you open a Torah scroll, but again, is visible in a, in a Torah book, is the Te'amim. The Te'amim is the cantillation marks. This is how you should sing the text. When you read the Torah in the in shul, in the synagogue, you don't just read it, there's, you kind of sing it. There's the Ashkenazi tradition, the Sephardic tradition, there are all kinds of traditions, but they it's all a little bit sung. Those two levels are not visible in the Torah text. Now this structure corresponds to another, even more basic, more well-known structure, which is the structure of the pardes. Pardes, the uh, root of the English word paradise. Pardes, this time the acronym goes from the bottom up, not from the top down, right? Tanta, just the, the letters, tanta, the word tanta, goes from the te'amim todotiot, from the top down. Pardes, as a word, goes from the bottom up. And that's another structure, but they really correspond. So pshat is the literal level, just the literal meaning of the text, of the stories and the commandments, what they say. And you can have several, you know, pshat uh, commentators maybe arguing about what is the pshat, but each one is trying to to understand the literal meaning of the text. And then remez is the second level, that is the level of allusions. The Torah alludes to many other things in the way it's written, in the, the a missing letter, an additional letter. Uh, the, it's various little elements in the text that allude to all kinds of hidden meanings. And then we have the letter of drush, or Drash, which is the homiletic level, it's all the Midrashim of the Torah that Chazal gave us. And the final level is saw, that's the level of the esoteric level, the mystical level, the level, level of Kabbalah and also Hasidut. So in a very beautiful way, these two structures correspond. The letters, 
being the building blocks of the text, what is very clear and every is very simple, and every child knows reads the letters and knows the letters. This corresponds or is like a symbol for the pshat level, just as letters are very easy to grasp and understand, and that's what you can see and hold to. That is like the pshat level, and then those little tagin, those little tiny tags that point upward, so to speak, like arrows. They're like the illusions, the remazim. They're, they hint, it's also, the, the remiz is also a hint. They hint at something that's invisible. You don't know what it is, but they hint at it. It's very, very small. And then the vowels. The vowels, in a way, are like the soul of the letters. You can say that the letters are like the body, and the vowels are like the soul of the body. Very interesting. We God's name in Hebrew the four-letter name, the God's holiest name, Yud Kei Vav Kei, it's made up of three letters, Yud and He and Vav. They are, uh, they're, they're consonants, they're part of the alphabet, but they're also vowels in Hebrew. So you have four letters in Hebrew that are like vowels, and they're called Ehevi, which is Aleph, He, Vav, Yud. Aleph suggests godliness, because it's one, it's oneness, and He, Vav, Yud make up God's name. So God's name is, God is like the soul of the world, and the vowels are like the soul of the text. A text is in a way dead without its vowels. It's not that it's really dead, it, it means that it, we can, each word in Hebrew you can read in many, many different ways, it all depends on the vowels. And Chazal play with this all the time. They take a word and they read it in another, they change the vowels. That's why the vowels are not written down in the Torah scroll. They're not written down on purpose, so that you can have many ways of reading the same word. So the word is like a body, but the, or like a vessel, and the vessel can inhabit, or be inhabited by, the vessel can be inhabited by different vowels or meanings. It's like different uh, inter-readings or understandings of the same text. This is why the Torah has 70 facets, and this is why uh, words can be read in many, many different ways. So this is very much like the drashot, the midrashim. Chazal take the text, and then they put into it so much, so many meanings, and they're they're dorshim. They take and they 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 dive into the text, and they read, and they find all these meanings and meanings and more meanings. And if you open any book of midrashim, it it takes you in one direction, then immediately afterwards it takes you in a totally different directions. This is like taking a word and reading it in many many different ways. So the Nekudot and the Drushim, they very much correspond. Finally, the level of Te'amim, the musical level, this is like the level of the esoteric uh, level of the Torah, the Kabbalistic, Hasidic level. This is just like music and poetry. is something that's beyond the rational and beyond what makes sense. And it's something you can't really explain. You need to hear music in order to, un to understand, so to speak, what it means. You don't understand this rationally or in some cognitive way. You're carried away by the music. And the music takes to places. And, it, and it's not you holding it. It's it holding you and carrying you with it. And this is very much to the sod level, which is like the surrounding light. right? The, the circle of the samech, of the sod. The first letter of the word sod is like the surrounding lights. And the music is also like a surrounding light. It's like a, like a, you know, a background 
score or soundtrack that's in the background, but it carries you with it. So, two, so these are two basic structures, and they're very, very solid, very important, and they teach about one, one another. Now, the strangest level here, the level hardest to understand, that is always the most confusing to people, on both structures is the second level from the bottom, which is the level of tags, tagim, in the, in the, in the first structure, the right structure, structure on the right, and the level of remazim, or hints or illusions, on the, on the structure on the left. It's unclear, let's talk about the pardes, it's unclear what the remez really is. Everyone knows what the pshat and the drash is. Pshat and drash are like two worlds. There's a whole world of pshat. Many people can live all their lives and just study the pshat, and it fulfills them. They love it. It's, it's a world of its own. And then there's a whole world of midrashim, of the stories of Chazal and the deeper interpretations of the Torah and all the, all the stories they take us. And that's a whole world. If you correspond those, those two structures to God's four-letter name, then the drush and the pshat become the two letters hey. And the hey is the most expensive letter. It expands in all directions. It's like two worlds. And then the sod on top is, everyone knows that it's there, but very few people understand what it means. But they know it's a whole world in and of itself as well. But it's, it's a hidden world. It's a very hidden world. And, but people know that it exists. And know that there's a, a whole books about Kabbalah and Hasidut, and it's a, it's, a, it's a hidden universe. So some people go into it, some people don't go into it, but they know it's there. But what is the Remez? Is there a whole world of Remez? Can we talk about whole literature of Remez? Whole interpreters that all they do is they go into the Remezim? Sometimes. The Baal HaTurim's uh, interpretation on the Torah is all Remezim. Rabbi Ginsberg has many uh, essays and, and sometimes books that are all just Remezim, a lot of Remezim. He loves Remezim. All the gematrias. The gematrias and the wordplay and the letterplay. But it's, uh, it's, it's small things. It's like the little arrows on top of the letters. It's unclear what it means. And in a way, the best way to understand the Remez is to think about the Sod as like this reservoir of water that's, over, that's up there in the skies, just like beneath our ground, there's groundwater, like a whole reservoir of hid, hidden waters. So the same goes for the Sod. Sod is like a hidden reservoir of waters. And then imagine a droplet falling down and going past the drash, and then situate, and then is situated between the drash and the pshat. That's the remez. A, a remez is a droplet of sod, a little bit of sod, which becomes like an intermediate level between the literal level and the homiletic level. Because the remezim are, very, are, are always a little bit Kabbalistic. It's gematrias and it's wordplay, and it's little hints, little, little details in the text that really point to a Kabbalistic meaning. But, it's, but we, don't, we haven't gotten to Kabbalah yet, because it's, we haven't got even to the homiletic level yet. So it's little, little hints of Kabbalah that are, that are in, the, in the level between. 
So it, this is reflected in the Tagim. The Tagim, nobody knows what the Tagim means. It's so weird. It's even said that Moshe Rabbeinu himself didn't know what the Tagim are all about. He, he took him, it says in the Midrash, that he took him, he took him a lot of time to add all the little Tagim to the Torah. And he said, told God, why am I doing this? Why am I wasting my time on those little Tagim? I don't know. I, he, Moses himself didn't understand what they mean. And he told them, well, the reason is that in a future generation, there's going to be a rabbi called Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva is going to take those little Tagim and is going to explain them in the deepest of ways. And is going to heaps upon heaps or structures upon structures of interpretations just on those little tagim. So that, so that sort of convinced Moshe that there's there's a, a, there, there's something to this. But it's a very mysterious element, and and it, it seems like you could do without it. That's what I'm trying to say. It seems like the Torah could have been just otiyot nikudot and teamim, or just pshat drush and sod. That's it. Who needs those ramazim? Very very. Who needs them? So anyway, the, what we what I'm adding what I'm driving at is that we can let go of that level and you know we, what do you mean let go of it we can have it be absorbed into the level of otiyot or pshat when you when you open a torah scroll or a mezuzah you see the letters and you see the tagim and the tagim are part of the letters they grow out of the letters like little trees so it's part of the letters we can say that the tagim are part of the letters and also they're part of the pshat, they're part of the actual text of the Torah. So we can say that this level can be absorbed into the level below it. And indeed, we don't have an acronym PADES, there's no such thing. But many times we see in Kabbalah that instead of talking about TANTA, we're talking about TENE. TENE, the word that we have here in Aparsha, which is the basket, that we need to put all the lights of the first ripened fruit, which is really the lights of our own souls, into this basket. The tene is a word that alludes to those three levels of te'amim and nekudot and otiyot. Now, interestingly, this whole idea is a remez. So we took the remez out, we took the tagim out, but this is all one big remez, because we're looking at the letters of the word Tene. So we can, we can say that the remez is here as, as a broad outline of things. You know, it's all, it, this whole idea is a remez idea. And, and like every remez, it's very tiny, it's very subtle. Okay, so Tene is the acronym of Tagim, Nekudot, and Otiyot. So what does it mean? It's, we have to explain this. It, a remez does not explain itself. It just points, it's like a little arrow or a sign that point says, this is interesting, look, the letters here, they, they connect with the structure, which is also the esoteric and homiletic and literal level. But again, it's just a remez. What do we do with this? So, <laughs> what we're going to do with this is we're going to add another remez, and this will open things up in a beautiful way and give us a beautiful insight for Chai Elul, the 18th day of Elul, the birthday of the Baal Shem Tov in the Erbishnel Zalman of Ladi, uh, and take something with us uh, to to look into very deeply. So, there is another mitzvah. It doesn't appear in our parasha. It's the mitzvah of hakel. Hakel means that after the Shemitah year is over, very soon, about two weeks from now, we're going into a year of Shemitah. 
But then the next year after, after that, in Sukkot, following Shemitah, we have a mitzvah called Hakel. And the Rebbe even said that the year after Shemitah, we should consider that whole year as a Hakel year. And the Hakel means to gather a crowd. And the mitzvah of Hakel is taking all the men, women, and children to Jerusalem. They're, they're there anyway in the festival of, of, of Sukkot. But at the end of Sukkot, they're all together and, and learn Torah. They have to all come together and, and heed the words of the Torah. And it very clearly says that this mitzvah goes for the men, the women, and the children. And the phrase is, Ha'anashim ha'anashim ve'hataf. The men, the women, and the children. If we take these two, three words, Anashim, Nashim, Vetaf, it creates the same acronym as Tene, but in the reverse order. And this is where we get to the main idea of this class, which we don't have a lot of time to, but we're going to say this, and this is, this is the takeaway. This is the main beautiful thing. And it tells us something very deep about Hasidut. So we have the three levels together. Te'amim clearly is the highest level. Nekudot is a level below that. And Otiyot is the, the lowest level. Right? It's the letters and the vowels and the cantillation marks. This corresponds to the men, the women, and the children, but in what, we, what appears to be the reverse hierarchical order in which the, of which the Torah is referring to. The Torah is being hierarchical, as was always the tradition, regarding men and women, and obviously also children. So today we have, we're in the age of gender equality, and this is not just a modern invention. This, according to Kabbalah, was meant to be, but it wasn't meant to be in, the, in those days. It was meant to be in our days. It's a gradual evolution process, which is called the rise of femininity. But during that time, this we're talking about before the rise of femininity. So before the rise of femininity, men were considered to be the highest level, and women were considered to be a sort of lower, on a lower level, and because they weren't educated, really, in, really did belong in some way to a lower level of learning. And then, of course, the lowest level is the children. And it even says, in interpreting this verse, that the men come to, to learn the Torah, uh, all the Torah, and the women come to learn some of the Torah, and the children come to learn even a little bit, even, even less, only what they can grasp of the Torah. But here, we, there, it's all reversed. The hierarchy is totally reversed. The men are at the bottom, corresponding to the letters, which you see the actual body of the text. The women correspond to the vowels, which is also the homiletic level. And the children correspond to the highest level, which is the level of the cantillation, the level of singing, the musical level, musical aspect of the Torah. So the idea that comes out of this is the following. The idea is that we can think of ourselves as containing all levels. On the one hand, we can say, well, the masculine level is intellectual, and then the the feminine level is the emotional, that's below. And then we have the childish level, which is, a child is, is, is often very much like a little animal, driven, you know, by basic drives, not really, you know, especially a baby. So that's like the intellectual level and the emotional level and the, 
and the behavioral level, or the level of instincts. But then we realize it's also reversed. We realize that there is a, an emotional level that goes above the intellect. This is called Pnimiyut HaLev, the inner dimension of the heart. The head should rule over the heart, but the inner level of the heart, the inner aspect of the heart, needs to rule over the intellect. This is the women being above the men here. And the most beautiful is that above the, the intellectual level and above the higher emotional level, we also have a kind of higher instinctual level, which is the inner child, which is here like the root of the soul, which is the highest level. It's like the soul in its pristine state. So again, there's a, a revealed hierarchy, head, heart, bodily instincts. But this hierarchy reflects a hidden hierarchy, which is a mirror image of it, in which the head is the lowest level, the intellectual level is the lowest level, above it is a sort of higher, high emotional level, and above it is, is the most spiritual level, that's the children. The children are the most spiritual here. So the idea goes like this. As we, uh, when we're reading the Torah, which is learning Torah, first we use our intellect. This is like our masculine level. It's just understanding what the Torah is saying, what it's telling us, what we're meant to do, what the, our obligations are, and it's a rational... And this is just the letters. The high feminine aspect of the soul listens beyond the letters. It listens to the vowels, to the spirit, to the movement. The vowels in Hebrew are also called tnuot. It's the movement of the letters. You, can, you have the text, the text can be, is, is like blocks of text. But then you can read it in different ways. You can put different souls in. You can inject different meanings into it. And experiencing how the, the word can move in one way and move in another way, that's not a, a masculine way of understanding the Torah. Chasidut came to, teach, to give us, first and foremost, this feminine level of the text. Before Hasidut, in a way, in a way, all of Judaism was just the reading the, the Torah from a masculine perspective, relatively speaking. Of course, there was the homiletic level, and there was the Kabbalists and everything. But in a way, Hasidut opened up the feminine reading of the Torah in a, in a way that was never opened before. It was never such a massive opening of the gates of the feminine reading of the Torah. So the, the, this has been going on for years, and every homiletic reading is a feminine reading. But the Hasidut really brought this level into, sort of opened our hearts to realizing we can read the text of the Torah not just in a rational, linear, intellectual way, we can go beyond it and start playing with the words and playing with their meanings and listening to the inner, inner vowels of the text in, in a way that we'd never listened to before. So this is the, the feminine level. It's a, it's a very basic idea that Rabbi Ginsburg is teaching that when we're coming to rectify the original sin, the sin of Adam and Eve and the snake, then first we rectify Adam by using a masculine Torah. This is like the lowest level here. And then Hasidut comes in order to rectify Eve. And that is the feminine reading of the Torah. And then out of Hasidut will grow 
what is called the Messianic Torah. The Messianic Torah corresponds to the Te'amim, the music. It said that we have never learned the true meaning of the Te'amim. The Te'amim have not yet been revealed to us. Only the Mashiach will come and reveal what the Te'amim mean. That is the full understanding of the esoteric level. And here, it's the child within us that does not understand the letters or the vowels. They haven't learned to read yet. But they can hear the music. So, imagine even in those days, the men would listen to the letters of the Torah, the women would come and hear the vowels, the movement, the sensation, the, the you know, where it's going, the, the essence of things, or the spirit of things. And the children didn't even perceive that. What did they, what did they perceive? The music of it. They, they, they would sit in a Torah class, and they didn't understand a word maybe, but they heard the music of the Rev, of the Rav teaching. And that spoke to them and, and, and was ingrained in them. And when we go into this upside-down high hierarchy within us, then the child is like the soul in its pristine state, which is connected to the highest level, the highest lights of the Torah. So the idea coming from... And so, and, and so if traditional Judaism is masculine and Hasidut is feminine, then the Torah of the Mashiach, the, Mash the Messianic Torah, will come to rectify the child within us. It also means rectifying the snake within us. This was the level that we thought was the animal level. But it turned out that the animal level is a reflection of the highest level of the soul, the spiritual instincts of the soul. So listening to the Torah, so this is, we can say that it's part of Hasidut, but it's, it would only truly be revealed to us as Hasidut evolves into the Messianic Torah, which is what we're trying to do in every Hasidic class. We're trying to evolve Hasidut into becoming the Messianic, just like a woman raising a child. Just like the mother, the fathers don't raise the child so much. It's the women who give birth to the child and, and breastfeed the child and try to raise the child. So here it's, the, it's Hasidut trying to give birth to the Mashiach. And then, by the way, the Mashiach will come and enter between the men and the women and connect them. This is like a child that goes into its parents' bedroom and, and sort of lies between the mother and the father and, and sort of connects them. Or a mother and a father walking with a child in between and holding hands. This is the level we, we took out, the Remez level. The level of Remez, the levels of Tagim, we said before, it's a droplet of the esoteric level. So the child is born, first we have the men, then the women, then the children, then the children sort of go in between the fathers and the mothers, and, and connect them, and, and combine them. So, so the idea we have from all of this is that this is really just another, a new way, a novel way of understanding what's going on, what is Hasidut all about. Hasidut is trying to go beyond the masculine reading of the Torah, which is just the letters. It's trying to go beyond and listening to the vowels, to the movement, to the spirit within the letters.
the hidden levels, and, and the purpose, uh, and then we want to connect those two levels, the masculine level of the Torah, which is the regular observance of, of Jewish law in a very straightforward manner. If we marry that level with the Hasidic level, then this gives birth to the Messianic Torah, which will come like a little child, as we have this motif in many books and you know, science fiction and fantasy stories, that you have this child Messiah, this child Mashiach that comes out of nowhere. It's also in the Zohar. The Zohar has, has a, a figure of a very old man coming to teach the secrets of the Torah, and also of a baby coming to teach the stories of the Torah. And sometimes in the Zohar you have this description of a very old man carrying a baby. And they go together, and they teach the most profound secrets. Why? Because it's a grandfather and a grandchild together in one. This is why the child here is the youngest one, but also the highest one. He is both child and grandparent. We have the two parents, and then we have this higher level. This really connects beautifully with the beginning of the class, talking about the Baal Shem Tov and the Bishnel Zalman of Ladi, who came to his, to his uh, birthday as a, as, a, as a little child and carried on his Torah and developed it further and integrated it further and made another step in trying to turn Hasidut into a, a Messianic Torah. So, um, this is our class for this week's Parsha and also for Chayelul. And I wish you all a very, very happy Chayelul, 18th day of Elul. Happy, happy birthday to the two uh, great masters of, of Hasidut. And, and this is it for this week. Hi, if you enjoyed this class, please click the like button and subscribe to the channel. On YouTube, also make sure to click the bell icon. To keep the classes flowing and free of charge, please consider supporting us on Patreon, an amazing platform for supporting independent creators. You're also welcome to join our weekly live Zoom class every Sunday evening, Israel time. You can find all the links in the description below. Thank you very much, keep healthy, and see you soon.